Good morning, church. Just a quick word, actually, before scripture reading. Hope we never take the scripture for granted. It's truly a gift from God, especially for those who are going through difficult or discouraging times. The word of God is really good. It's true. It's wise because it points to our God who is true, wise, and good. Scripture reading this morning comes from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, you can find the passage on the bottom of page 871, Luke 12, 35 through 48. Now hear this, this reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, Blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us, for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, we thank you for your holy word that has just been read. And we're asking for the Holy Spirit to now come and to do the work that only he can do to awaken our hearts, to change our hearts, to apply this word to our hearts and to our lives. So we pray this for your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. In the days leading up to May 18, 1910, people across the globe were preparing for the end of the world. Because on that day, 
Halley's Comet was scheduled to fly by the Earth, as it does every 76 years. But this time, people all over the world were in a panic. Months earlier, the New York Times had published an article citing a French astronomer who had theorized that this time, the Earth was going to pass through the comet's tail, and he speculated that the comet's tail was filled with enough cyanide gas to poison the atmosphere and snuff out all life on Earth. Well, even though other astronomers refuted that theory, mass panic set in. Sails soared for gas masks and oxygen tanks. People were sealing up their windows, plugging up their keyholes to, to try to keep the vapors out. Huskers were, were selling so-called comet pills, which they claimed would make you immune to the toxins. Churches were completely filled. Religious processions were going on in the streets of major cities all over the world. But on the morning of May 19th, the sun came up again, and life went on. And there were reports of people in the streets who were dancing and embracing, believing that they had just survived the near apocalypse. Now, friends, that's just one of many doomsday scenarios that have come and went, and now is just a footnote in the pages of history. I know it just seems silly that people could get so hysterical over such things, but really, it just goes to show that if you're truly convinced that this is the end of the world, that it's going to come, and it's going to come soon, then life as you know it is definitely going to change. You're just not going to go about as business as usual. You're going to start doing things that you've never done before, and you'll stop doing things that would be a waste of time if your days truly are numbered. Maybe you get religious, or maybe you might lose religion. Maybe some, some of you would, would, you know, bunker down and, and, and do whatever it takes to, to survive, while others would just go home and hold their loved ones tight. It makes you do think, what would I do? What would I do if the world was about to end? If I knew I had only one day left on earth, how would I spend it? What would I do with the time that I have left? What would I not want to be doing? What would be a colossal waste of time, of that precious time that I have? How would you spend those remaining days on earth? Well, let's be clear here. I, I don't think it's healthy for Christians to, to focus on end time predictions. I, I, there's no point in trying to figure out when the world is going to end. I mean, there have been thousands of predictions over the centuries, and 100% of them have been 100% wrong. And so don't bother with end time predictions. But friends, there is something to be said about end time preparations. And by that, I, I don't mean going out and buying a gas mask and you know, stockpiling food and weapons in your basement. Uh, what I mean by end-time preparations is that a Bible-believing Christian who takes Jesus' word seriously should be prepared at any time for the end of time. If Jesus' teaching is to believe, then the question of what would you do and what would you not be doing if you had only one day left on earth that is a question that every Christian should know how to answer because every Christian ought to be living that way right now. You know, we're in a summer series 
going through some of the parables of Jesus found in the Gospel of Luke. And in this morning's parable, Jesus commands his followers to stay alert, to stay awake, to be ready, to be prepared at any time for the end of time, that is, for his return. Our focus is on Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 48, but let me just set our passage in its larger context real briefly. Chapter 12, if, if you look, and I hope you have your Bible in front of you, you see it begins in chapter 12 with a warning of Jesus to his disciples about the teaching of the Pharisees, which really does become relevant later on in the parable when he brings up these unfaithful stewards who have been put in a position of authority within the household of God. In chapter 12, it also goes on to address our anxieties, our worries, especially over money. And Jesus tells us, don't be anxious. Don't worry about treasures on earth, but instead trust for your, in your heavenly Father and store up for yourself treasures in heaven. So what Jesus then does with our passage is that he gives us even more reason not to spend our days stressing out about money by reminding us that every day should be lived as if tomorrow Jesus might return. I mean, just, just think about this. If you knew that Christ is coming back tomorrow to establish his kingdom here on earth, would you really be worrying about money? No, you would be seeking first his kingdom and you would be trusting that he would add all these things unto you. So, that's what he's doing in our passage in the context of the larger chapter. Let me just show you three things here, three things in our passage of what Jesus is calling his followers to do. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, you found an outline. First, be ready at all times. Second, be faithful in your stewardship. And third, be aware of the consequences for unpreparedness and unfaithfulness. So let's begin in verse 35. Here we see Jesus give a command to be ready at all times. Why? Because Christ could return when you least expect it. The picture that Jesus paints for us is of servants waiting up late into the night for their master to return. The night, we're told, is growing long. He has yet to return from a wedding feast. And you have to understand that in, ancient, in the ancient Near East, weddings were multi-day events. Sometimes they could take as long as a week. And so these servants have been staying up late for multiple nights. So at this point, they're exhausted. Their eyelids are heavy. They are fighting off sleep because they, they don't know when their master is going to return, and they want to be ready for him. When Jesus says, stay dressed for action, it literally is translated as to keep your loins girded. Jewish men in those days, they would typically wear long robes that would uh, make it hard to run and would impede your motion if you were needing to act quickly. And so if you're about to engage in some kind of strenuous activity, what you would do is you would gird up your loins. In other words, you would tuck that long robe into your belt so that you would be ready. It's like today saying to someone, roll up your sleeves or fasten your seatbelt, be ready that's what Jesus is saying. Now he goes on to say, keep your lamps burning. Just like in the parable of the ten virgins, the wise servant is going to have plenty of oil in his lamp so he won't be caught off guard if his master comes knocking even in the dead of night. So look at verse 36. 
Verse 36, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Now that image of a master coming home, knocking on the door, just brings to mind the image of Jesus knocking on the door found in that famous passage in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Let me read that to you. This is Jesus speaking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, that verse is very often quoted in our attempts to share the gospel with non-Christians. You hear that being used to plead with people to come to Jesus. Don't you hear Jesus knocking on the door of your heart? You got to let him in. Open your heart to Jesus. Open your door to Jesus. Now, friends, that might preach. That might preach, but don't lose sight of the context. This was actually Jesus' letter to the church of Laodicea. And so he's not talking to non-Christians, kindly asking them to let him into into their house. He's talking to the church. So this is his house, and he's knocking on his door, wondering where his servants are and why they're not awake and awaiting for his return. His concern in Revelation 3 is that his followers have grown lukewarm, that they're no longer alert, they're just apathetic. Now, in a few verses later, uh, Jesus will address what he's going to do in, in our passage. He's going to address what he's going to do to the lukewarm and unprepared servant. But for now, he's going to focus uh, on the prepared servant who does find, uh, who the master does find awake when he comes. So Jesus, if you look in verse 37 of our, of our passage, he gives a beatitude. He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Now this is just unheard of behavior for an ancient Near Eastern master of a household. So in this scenario, you're a servant, or more literally translated, you're a slave. But here, your master, who just got home after a long journey in the dead of night, here he is putting on the garments of a slave, of a servant, and he's asking you now to sit at his table, and he's going to serve you a meal. He appreciates how you are just so prepared. You are so ready for his return. Verse 38 mentions being awake into the second and third watches of the night. The Romans, they kept four watches um, where they would calculate between 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And so that would mean the second and third watch would equate to 9 p.m. all the way to 3 a.m., being up and ready. Now, the Jews would customarily only keep three watches, and so that would equate to 10 p.m. all the way to 6 a.m. Either way, however you want to calculate it, the idea is is that you as a servant have been up into the wee hours of the night waiting for your master, and now he is just so grateful, so thankful that he wants to serve you. He wants to bless you. The master will serve his servants. That is unheard of. Well, unless, of course, your master is Jesus, because this is 
This is characteristic behavior for Christ. He has no problem taking on the form of a servant because that's exactly what he did in his first coming. He was born a king, but remember, he was born a servant king. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus served us in his greatest act of service by bearing our burdens, bearing our sin upon his cross, making atonement for our sins with his shed blood. And so it's because Jesus came the first time to serve, it's very natural for him to come a second time with the exact same attitude. He will stand at the door and he will knock. And for those who are prepared, for those who are ready for his return, Jesus will also be ready to bless us, to serve us. But friends, you've got to be ready. You've got to be ready at all times. You don't want to be caught unprepared. He could come. He could return when you least expect it. That's his point in verse 39. Jesus in verse 39 compares the unexpectedness of his return to the unexpectedness of a thief breaking into your house. Look in verse 39, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now, you might find it strange that Jesus would use the comparison of a thief, but remember here that this is a parable, and in a parable, not every character or object has to, 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 to be representative of someone or something. I mean, that, that's what you would expect in an allegory if you're interpreting an allegory, but remember, this is a parable, and the key to interpreting a parable is you just got to find that main idea. You got to find that, that main principle that's being illustrated, and you got to apply it. So a thief breaking into your house, on the one hand, illustrates the idea of loss that you're going to suffer if you're unprepared. Unprepared for the thief's arrival or unprepared for Jesus' return. Now, with a thief, the most that you could lose would be some household goods and some earthly treasures. But with Jesus, Friends, with Jesus, if you are not prepared for his return, you could lose far more. You could lose eternal joy. You could miss out on his kingdom. You will suffer great loss if you are not ready. But the main idea here in this parable is the unexpectedness of his return. Now, I find it ironic that so many people over the centuries have wasted so much energy trying to predict when Jesus is going to return, when he said from the beginning that it's pointless. Did you read that? For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so the minute you set a date, the minute you expect him to come back on that day, you can be sure you're going to be wrong. He said it. You're not going to expect it. So the point is that just like how a homeowner can't predict when a thief is going to strike, so he's always going to be ready in the same way. You can't predict when Jesus is going to return. And so you have to stay ready, to be vigilant, to be prepared. Stay dressed for action. Keep your loins girded. Keep your lamp lit. So friends, can you honestly say that you're ready his return. 
Are you prepared for Jesus to come back? If you haven't given it much thought, or if you assume that that's always going to be something that, that happens way out into the future, not within your lifetime, do, do you realize that thinking that way would indicate that you're not ready? Now, to be ready doesn't mean that now we need to go and start, like I said, you know, studying all these end-time prophecy charts. It doesn't mean you need to go bunker down to quit your job, to just drop all of the future plans that you've been making and all the responsibilities that you have and just assume that tomorrow never comes. That's not what I mean by being ready. Now, to be ready for Jesus' return means, first of all, means getting right with God. Are you right with God? Are your sins forgiven? Do you have a clean and clear conscience? Are you ready to stand before an all-knowing, all-seeing, holy God? The only way to be ready is to avail yourself of God's only way of salvation by relying on the death and resurrection of his son. So be ready to face God, my friends, by turning to Jesus in faith and and having his blood and his righteousness to cover you and to cover your sin and your shame. You get ready for Christ's return by first getting right with God. Another way, another way to be ready for his return is to live your life in such a way that you won't regret it if this is your last day. When Jonathan Edwards was only 19, he drew up a list of resolutions that he would read to himself once a week. So he, he's just a teenager here, and yet he is already committed to living a God-centered life. And so just listen to his seventh of eventually 70 resolutions. Seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Friends, is there anything that you would be afraid or ashamed to be doing when Jesus returns? I'm not just talking about sinful things. I'm also talking about wasteful things. Do you take Jesus' words seriously? You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So let's resolve, let's be resolved to not do anything that we would be afraid or ashamed to be doing if this truly were the last hour of our lives. Now I know there's always going to be some pushback to talking like that. A warning against being just so focused on Jesus coming back, so future-oriented that you could lose sight of what's exactly in front of you. And yes, that, that's, a, that's a legitimate concern. You, you don't want to be so wrapped up with a future day event that you neglect present-day responsibilities. Some Christians can be so focused on, on Jesus' second coming that they neglect to care for their day-to-day responsibilities and the people under their care. Jesus is well aware of that concern, and that's why he gives a second parable for us in verse 42. This is the second thing we see Jesus calling his disciples to do, to be faithful in your stewardship. Why? Because everything ultimately belongs to the Lord. 
Before we get into that second parable, Peter speaks up and he asks the Lord about who his target audience is. So who, who are you speaking to? Who are you targeting, Jesus? So look in verse 41. Lord, are, are you telling this parable for, for us or for all? Because, you know, sometimes Jesus would direct his parables to the crowds in general, and then sometimes he would just focus a parable on his disciples in particular. So, so Jesus, when you're saying you need to be ready at all times, who are you talking to? Who are you concerned is not going to be ready? I think all of us tend to assume that when Jesus gives warnings, he's, he's warning someone else. We, we, we assume that we already get the lesson. We already understand. Well, notice Jesus doesn't directly answer Peter, but how he answers with this parable he gives makes it clear that Peter and the rest of the disciples and really everyone entrusted with a stewardship from God, with God's resources, we're the intended audience. Really, this warning is for all of us. And so listen again to verses 42 to 44. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So Jesus wants his followers to see themselves as managers, more literally as stewards. Now this ties into the earlier verses that were there in chapter 12 about not being anxious over money and material things. There's, there's really no need to fret over treasures on earth when you come to realize that they don't belong to you in the first place. Everything ultimately belongs to God, and he has given to you a stewardship over a tiny fraction of his belongings. A steward, you have to understand in ancient times, was a particular servant in the household who was left in charge, given a lot of responsibility while the master was away. So he was entrusted with a privileged authority, a privileged responsibility to steward well on behalf of his master. And the main responsibility as a steward is you've got to take care of your fellow servants. All the other servants in the household, verse 42 says, you have to feed them. You have to, to manage the rationing of their food, making sure everyone is well fed. To be a steward is a great and awesome privilege. But it does require, it requires a change of perspective. I think we're far too accustomed to seeing ourselves as, as owners, as masters in our own right. It's, it's my money and my phone, my car, my house, my kids, my marriage, my job, my time. It's so natural to see all of that as mine. But the biblical reality is that all of that just simply belongs to the Lord. We don't ultimately own anything. We're not masters. We're not owners. We are stewards who have been given money. We've been given a phone, a car. We've been given uh, kids, uh, a marriage, job. We've been given time to steward all of those things well on behalf of our master, on behalf of the Lord. Just think about your kids. Are you raising them 
with the mindset that if Jesus returns tomorrow that you're going to have to give them back to the Lord? Or are you clinging so tightly to them, to your dreams and your goals for them that you would have a hard time letting go? What about your, your job or your career aspirations? If Jesus were to come back Monday morning, are there still a few emails you kind of feel like you really got to send off before you go? Or are, are you just so consumed by work, you're so consumed that you're just going to have a difficulty letting go? What about your money? If he returns tomorrow, would you be ready to show Jesus how you have invested all those riches that he entrusted to you, how you invested it in his kingdom's work or in storing up for yourself treasures in heaven? Are you ready for that? If Jesus were to return, would you run out of your house to greet him? Or would you linger behind in your house, rummaging through your things, running your fingers over everything, grieving that your stewardship is now over and that you're going to have to give it all back to your master. What would you be thinking? I'll tell you what the wise and faithful stewards think. They think, I've been given earthly treasure. I've been given an education. I've been given a career. I've been given resources and relationships. What am I doing with them? Am I using them just to serve myself, to do what's good for me? No. A good steward is going to take all of those things, all of those treasures, and use them to serve the good and welfare of others. That's what preparedness looks like. Selfless service. Self-denying stewardship. That's the mindset of someone who is ready at all times for his or her master's return. When the Lord returns, the good steward is going to be ready to fling open the doors and to welcome him home. The good steward is going to willingly hand back the keys and relinquish control and return to Jesus what belonged to him all along in the first place. In, verses, in verse 44, it says that the servant whom the master finds prepared will be set over all of his possessions. Do you see that? You're going, to receive, you're going to receive a more permanent position of honor and responsibility in the kingdom come. That's how he's going to bless you. He's going to give you more work. Now, that's totally consistent with what you see in other parts of Scripture that describe the kingdom come, that describe the new heavens and new earth. It's not going to be a place of perpetual relaxation and leisure and inactivity. No, the new heavens and new earth are going to be a place of work and responsibility. Of course, work that's been redeemed from all of its frustration and toil, but there will still be work and responsibility for us. And if that doesn't appeal to you, if being given more responsibility by God doesn't seem like a blessing, then you're going to have to wonder if you're going to enjoy eternity with God in heaven, in his kingdom. Because if you're not ready for life in the kingdom come, then you're definitely not ready for the return of the king. So if you're not ready, or if you're not sure you're ready, what might help here is to consider some of the consequences and that's where Jesus goes in verse 45. This is the third thing he wants his followers to do. 
to be aware of the consequences of unpreparedness and unfaithfulness because you have been entrusted with much. So Jesus goes on in verse 45 to describe a scenario where the steward says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Now, I know that's pretty graphic, but I think it's safe to assume that that's figurative language there of cutting him to pieces. But, you know, even if you're just still stuck on this thought that God might cut someone in pieces, if you can't get over that, then how are you going to handle God putting that servant with the unfaithful? Because that can also be translated as with the unbelievers. I think that gets the idea across better. This unprepared servant is going to be cut off and assigned with the unbelievers. So we're talking here about hell. We're talking about eternal damnation. So if you can't get a handle on God cutting someone in pieces, then you're not going to get a handle on hell. Because that's the punishment for those who abuse their stewardship, who assume due to their master's prolonged absence that they can just use their privilege, their authority, their resources that they were entrusted with to serve others and instead they're going to start serving themselves and abusing it and using it for their own pleasures. Well, Peter must have taken Jesus' words to heart because in 2 Peter chapter 3, he talks about scoffers in the last day who are going to be scoffing at the Lord's return. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? It's been thousands of years, and he still hasn't returned. You, you just need to get your head out of the clouds, and you need to start taking care of yourself. Focus on yourself. To that, Peter replies in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Yeah, Peter was listening. Don't be like the scoffer who misuses the precious time that Jesus gives and fails to appreciate that his return has been prolonged for the very purpose of giving sinners more time to repent, to repent of all of our sin and our self-serving tendencies. That's why it's taking what we consider so long. Friends, if you keep putting off Jesus, putting off the questions, the big questions about your eternal salvation, about getting right with God, about whether or not you're ready for his return. If you just keep putting off these questions, putting off these issues, then sooner or later, time is going to run out. Time will be up. And the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night when you least expect it. Now, if you keep reading in verses 47 to 48, Jesus shifts attention from the steward in particular to the rest of the servants who were in the household. And he says, verse 47, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. 
But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. The point here is that no one has an excuse. Whether you grew up with the Bible or you've never really read it before, whether you call yourself a Christian or you consider yourself an agnostic, it's all the same in the end. Because if you're unprepared for Jesus' return, whether you spend your days in ignorance of God's will or in blatant disobedience of it, if you're unprepared, there will be consequences. There will be punishment. But apparently, according to Jesus' saying here, there will apparently be degrees of punishment in proportion of how much knowledge and responsibility you've been entrusted with. Jesus says at the end of verse 48, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So that means the unfaithful steward, that one servant who was set apart and given responsibility, if he is unfaithful, he will be cut to pieces. The unfaithful servant in the household who knew better will be severely beaten, and the unfaithful servant who didn't know better will, and yet is still unfaithful will be lightly beaten. And so you see Jesus explaining there are degrees of punishment. But the moral here, the takeaway is not let's just stay as ignorant as we can of the, God, of the Lord's will so you'll only be beaten lightly. Like if you're reading that and that's your takeaway, you've misread this text. A legitimate reading would conclude that all three of these unfaithful servants are in hell. They're experiencing eternal punishment. Now, yes, their experience of that punishment will be different, but the point is that their punishment will be just and it will be fair. So none of them here are to be envied. None of them are to be emulated. They are to be pitied, and they are to serve as warnings to us all, especially to those of us who have been entrusted with spiritual knowledge and spiritual authority. If you are spiritually responsible for others, for a spouse, for children, for a small group, for a disciple, for a mentee, then just like that steward in the parable, you've been entrusted with much. So much will be demanded of you. You'll be held to a higher standard. And that's why the Apostle James says in his letter, in chapter 3, verse 1 of James, that not many should become teachers in the church. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Judged with greater strictness. Now that warning would apply to anyone who takes on any kind of spiritual responsibility in the church. So, what Jesus says here about degrees of punishment is not meant to give you relief, thinking, oh, good, I don't know enough to get beaten that much. No, that's not the point here. It's meant to give you pause to anyone who is in a position of spiritual stewardship over others or anyone considering to take on such a responsibility. It gives you pause to consider what you're committing yourself to. But in the end, the big takeaway really just applies to everyone. 
Everyone needs to get ready. So are you ready? Take stock of your life. Are you living as if Jesus is actually coming? Or are you living like he's going to be delayed? Or is the thought not even on your radar? If we're honest, we'd admit that none of us are as prepared for his coming as we ought to be. And this is why, friends, all of us need the gospel. All of us need a Savior, a Savior who bears the consequences, who suffers the punishment that we deserve for our unpreparedness and our unfaithfulness. So thank God that the gospel is not about a warning to be ready or else. No, the gospel is good news for unfaithful servants about the true and faithful servant of God who bore our sins on the cross and buried our sins with him in the grave. And on the third day, he rose again. And he is coming back one day, one day very soon. Thank you, God, for this word. And I pray, Lord, that you, by your spirit, will convict when we need conviction, and that you will make us ready for your son's glorious return. And on that day, as we worship your son, as we marvel at his coming, Lord, may you receive all the due glory, and may your church be satisfied with the sight of your son's return. We pray all of this in your name, amen.